This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you're here with us this morning as we look at this chapter that Grace just read for us. Uh, yeah, it's been um, a year this month since my, my father passed away, and uh, so when the, those markers uh, come, you, you, I think, maybe give a little more extra attention to remembering and thinking of stories and talking. I was with my, one of my brothers yesterday and just thinking about my dad. For some reason, all week long, I kept thinking about this, and this happened decades ago, but uh, a retirement party uh, that my dad had. And through this big retirement party, and it was a, uh, a great time of celebration. It was a great time of feasting. There were speeches. Some of them were speeches made about my dad. Some of them were my dad making speeches about. He was, he was given to, to, uh, to speeches, and so he was giving all kinds of, uh, of celebratory uh, oratory that day. Um, and then there was a handing over the, the sort of the keys of the company. He and his, his uh, partner had founded this, and they were passing it on to others who are going to lead the way. But what I didn't know at the time, and which my brother reminded me of yesterday, is uh, that though dad retired, he didn't exactly go away. And uh, there's probably mixed feelings for those who still work there as to whether that was a good thing or or a bad thing. But he uh, he remained in some ways as a part of the company, a part of the board, giving direction. Point being, he retired, dad retired, but he didn't go away. And we kind of have something like that here in what Grace just read to us from 1 Samuel chapter 12. We've been looking all summer, or the second half of the summer, we've been looking at the beginning of this book of 1 Samuel. And here in our text today, Samuel is about to step aside, but before he does, he takes the time to make a farewell address. And it's a doozy of a speech, because he lets the people of Israel know, in no uncertain terms, that they have made a bad choice in demanding a king. Not the specifics of the particular king, King Saul, but, but demanding a king at all. Because in the past, you see, God had raised up judges to lead the people, but the people were demanding a king, like the nation said. The prophetic judges were God-appointed. The political kings were people acclaimed. And now Samuel says in his farewell address, in his sermon, he says, this isn't good. This was wicked. This was evil, in fact. But it doesn't have to be a disaster. He tells the people they can choose to follow the Lord still. And even with that note of grace, though, you do see a sense of destiny setting in here. Samuel is announcing the era of second best, you might say. And so we're nothing fancy this morning. We're just going to walk straight through the text. And I'm going to sort of group it under three headings. First, we're going to see Samuel putting himself on trial here. In other words, he's opening himself up to scrutiny. But then secondly, he does that for uh, the people of Israel. He puts them under the microscope for a bit to examine them. And then finally, he offers them a path forward. Despite their sin, God's grace is greater still. So let's begin uh, this morning by thinking about the first few verses, the trial and the vindication of Samuel. Verse 1 says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. So the people begged for a king, but Samuel perceives and God confirms that their trust in a human king is at the expense of their trust in the Lord to protect them, to direct them, to guide them. And back in chapter 8, God said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. And then he says this specifically to Samuel. He says, they have not rejected you, Samuel, 
but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel here at the beginning of his retirement party, he says, I've given you what you wanted. Behold, you're king. But you can hear the weariness and the sorrow in his voice as he says this. But before he moves off the scene, Samuel seeks some vindication in the eyes of the people, not only for his character and his integrity, but also for the style of leadership that he employed when he was there. Verse 3, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Of whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. In other words, Samuel is inviting scrutiny. He's welcoming transparency. Isn't that rare in positions of leadership and power, these days at least? Samuel's saying, open all the records, play all the tapes. I've got nothing to hide. And those five rhetorical questions that he asked, whose ox have I taken and so on, well, they're all in direct contrast to the warnings he had issued about what they could expect in a king. He said back in chapter 8, he says, you all want a king so that you can be like the nations. You all want a king so that you can feel protected. But that's not all you'll get if you get a king. You see, kings will take from you. Kings will uh, seize your property. They will conscript your children for war. They'll seize your land. They will take the fruit of the harvest. They will use you to add to their success, to their platform, to their power, to their influence. They'll, Samuel's warning, in other words, that kings will use you to make their life better. But he says, I want you to know that I led in just the opposite way. I didn't try to enrich myself or boost my importance. I served you. And in verse 4, the people agree. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Think about the way that people treat positions of power or leadership or authority or importance. British preacher Rico Tice says that people are at base either radiators or drains. That is, they either give out light and heat or they tend to suck it all away. And Jesus Christ said of his own leadership and the leadership that we as Christians are meant to imitate and follow him in, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you know, all of us have power in some sense. We all have some kind of authority, at least in particular situations. The question is, how do you use it? Are you a radiator? Or are you a drain? And Samuel warned, the kings, they're going to be like drains. They're going to use their office. They're going to use their position as a way to pull resources and benefits and ease and comfort and fame toward them. They will operate on the basis of your life to benefit me. But Samuel and Jesus, it's not your life to benefit me, but instead my life, my position, my authority to benefit you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I said Samuel was seeking the vindication, not just of his style of leadership, but also he's seeking the vindication for his integrity in that leadership. 
And the truth is leaders, and maybe especially sacrificial leaders, servant leaders, can feel underappreciated. You think to yourself, nobody sees the sacrifices that I make. Nobody sees all the extra time that I spend. Nobody knows the burdens that I uniquely carry for this organization or for the people around me. And so then the temptation for people like that is to make a little deal with yourself. I'm owed something. I'm owed something for these sacrifices that I make. A little extra money, a little extra fame, some secret sin that I can make peace with, nurse, indulge in, be it sexual or otherwise. The story reminds us, don't make that deal. Don't make the deal. Samuel didn't. He was faithful. He was a person of integrity. Thanks be to God for his example in this respect. So Samuel puts his life under the microscope. But now he flips the script, starting in verse 6. And it's the people of Israel who are under examination. And he begins, Samuel does, by pointing out a pattern that plays out through Israel's Life. Then the pattern goes like this, right? There's some sort of crisis happens, a, a terrible situation, pain and suffering breaks in in some way. And so then the second part of the, uh, the pattern is the people begin to cry out for help, to ask for God to intervene. And then thirdly, God sends deliverance, usually by raising up a leader to help them. Now this pattern, it happens over and over and over again. Samuel refers to some of these episodes in his speech here. He refers to the bondage in Egypt. Remember, they were in slavery, and Israel cries out for relief, and God hears their cries, and Moses and Aaron are raised up to lead them out of slavery. Then the period of the judges, oppression by their adversaries, the cries for help, deliverance comes through the likes of Jeroboam, who's better known as Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel whoever else was needed. There's a final part to that cycle. It's crisis, pain, suffering, difficulty, crying for help to God, God answering those prayers with deliverance. But then, and here's the last part of the cycle, verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. And this is the basic sin of the nation of Israel. And it's maddening Not just here as you read it uh, in the Old Testament. It's maddening because it happens over and over and over and over again as you read through the Old Testament. They're in trouble. They cry out. God delivers them. And soon after, they forget about God altogether. Do you see any of this cycle in your own life? Something difficult happens to you? You cry out to the Lord. Some pain breaks into your life. Some difficulty, some hardship. You cry out. You pray. You ask for God's help. And then... God intervenes, God is near, neither the problem passes or at least it lessens, and shortly thereafter, your zeal for the Lord fades. Your relationship with God diminishes in importance. He takes a back seat to whatever other things are going on. If you took a, a panoramic picture of the last five to ten years of your life, would there be some cycle like this playing out in your life? I think for many of us. It would be. But note here, God's grace in the midst of all of this. They forgot God, but God does not forget them. He continues to show up to deliver them, to forgive them, 
Time and again, He's gracious to them. Some have called this the scandalous math of grace. God is gracious over and over again. Extravagant, disproportionate grace. And this grace, when you receive it, it ought to affect the way then we're disposed to interact with others. And there's this place in Matthew chapter 18 where one of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, how often do I have to forgive someone when they sin against me? As many as seven times. Seven times is a lot when you think about the practicalities of this, right? Forgiving somebody seven times. In fact, I think probably the disciple thought he was, you know, sort of laying it on for Jesus, like, look how gracious I can be. I'm willing seven times. Jesus' response is instructive. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but instead, and then the translators aren't sure exactly what it means, is either 77 times or 70 times seven times, 490 times. Point being, we're to show extravagant grace because that's what we have received. That's what God has shown to us. How often has God forgiven you? Can you even count the times? How many ways has God demonstrated his kindness towards us? Part of the reason we come here to worship is to recount those things so that we can be sent out in the world as then dispensers of a similar kind of grace. Verses 12 to 13, Samuel had pointed out the ways that God had delivered them in the past, but now it seems this contemporary crisis seems worse than any of those other times. And that's typically how it goes, right? When you're in the midst of something, you can acknowledge, oh yes, we've been in trouble before, but never quite like this. Our pain now is unprecedented, which is almost always not the case, right? That things are without precedent. But that's how it feels. And that's how it felt to Israel. The Ammonites had been raiding them for months, the villages being terrorized. And rather than cry out to God, now they feel like this is different. They demand a king. They had thought of a king before, but the present crisis, the present fear crowds out everything else, leads them to this desperate action. They don't cry to God. Instead, they devise a technical, political solution. Give us a king. And Dale Ralph Davis says Israel's approach here is a king or bust instead of in God we trust. That's a good way to put it. In verse 14 and 15 then, Samuel tells them this is a failure. This request for a king, it's not good. It's wicked, in fact. But, he says, all is not lost. God has not given up on them. Things can still go well if they'll seek the Lord. And I just want you to take note at the end of verse 14, where it says, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Now, I say take note of that. We can just pass over this verse. But in the ancient world, this would have been astounding to read. This is very unusual. Because you see, kings in the ancient world were thought to be gods. But here Samuel says, your king must submit himself to the one true God. In other words, no human authority is absolute. The king too must serve Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. Well, then Aunt Samuel asks for a sign. Have you ever had an argument with somebody and you know you've made your case with crystal clear rationale and yet nothing seems to get through, nothing seems to register? Well, Samuel knows that his argument, though it has been clear, has not gotten through. 
And so he seeks a sign. He says, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. And a thunderstorm then rolls through, which was a big deal because it was during the wheat harvest, it says, which was May and June, which is the beginning of the dry season in that part of the world. A thunderstorm then, while not unheard of, is just strange enough, just unusual enough to get their attention. And for Samuel, this is a way of demonstrating the Lord's support for what he is proclaiming. It's also a vindication that though there is a king now, the office of prophet is not obsolete. There's still someone who's speaking God's word to the people and to the king. The sign makes an impression. And in verse 19, the people ask for prayer, which brings us to the final part of Samuel's address here. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. What does God do when His people have committed spiritual disaster? What does God people say when He encounters a people who have charted their own course without Him, largely ignoring Him? What does God say to His people when they've been confronted with how ugly their sin really is? Well, He says, do not be afraid. Which is a striking thing. You have done all this evil, yet. Those are beautiful words. You have done all this evil, yet. Story's not over. This is where we see the gospel in this text. The story's not over. Neither Samuel nor, more importantly, God is walking off the scene to leave them. Instead, God offers them a way forward. You have done all this evil, yet. Reminds me of the way the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans. For example, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Samuel says, yes, look at your sin. He doesn't pull any punches. He's not papering over anything. But he also says, don't just look at your sin. Don't stop there by looking at your sin. You've done all this evil, yet. And the Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane says, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. Look at your sin, yes, but God's grace is greater still. It's worth more of your attention, more of your gaze, which is why Samuel can say, do not be afraid. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way, do not be afraid. Yes, you have sinned, but don't let your sin paralyze you with guilt. Don't let your sin dupe you into thinking you are irredeemable. Don't for a minute suppose that God has called it quits on you. It is God's business to save you. And God has not given up. Samuel then calls them to move forward with the Lord. Maybe this is the thing you need to hear most this morning, because some of us I know have come in here with heavy hearts over our sin. Maybe something recent, maybe something last night. Could be something that's persistent, something we've done, something we've had guilt building up for. And there might be things for you to do. There might be reconciliation that you need to go seek with someone. There might need to be repentance that needs to happen. But once that happens, the call 
is for you to move forward with the Lord. Samuel says, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Move forward. In other words, don't perpetually rewind. Don't hit replay over and over on your sins and failures. You can't go back, but you can know the pardoning grace of God. And that can launch you forward so that you can serve him. What is the choice you need to make today to leave the past behind and to move forward fearing the Lord and serving him faithfully? You've done all this evil yet. This is Samuel's gospel. Israel has sinned, but God's grace is greater still. Verse 24, he says, For consider what great things God has done for you. This is Samuel's message. But what is Samuel himself? What's he going to do now? Verse 23, Moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Leadership structure is changing, but Samuel says, I'm not exactly retiring. Still have a role to play. He says, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to instruct you in the good and the right way. He'll continue to teach. He'll continue uh, to give them the word of the Lord. And then secondly, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He's going to intercede for them. He's going to pray for them. He'll teach and he'll pray. That's how Samuel is going to continue to serve the people of Israel. And a thousand years later, one greater than Samuel came into the world and his ministry was shaped very much around those two things, those same elements Jesus Christ said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me. Jesus came to teach the Word of God and He did so with power and authority. It says that people marveled at His teaching. And it wasn't just that He spoke God's Word. It was that He was the living Word, the true revelation of God, for in Him the full fullness of deity dwells bodily. Learn from Me, Jesus said. He's gentle and lowly in heart. He's not a leader who says, your life to benefit Me. But everything about Jesus was Him pouring Himself out, His life to benefit you. And He did it all the way to the cross where He died for your sins. So He taught... But Jesus also prays for us and continues to still. Hebrews chapter 7 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, him, near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Like Israel, we too are an unfaithful people. Like Israel, we cycle through times of calling out to God and sadly times of forgetting about Him. So how can we be saved? How can we come to the God that we've forgotten. When Jesus prays for us, even now He is doing the priestly work of intercession on your behalf. We sang it just a moment ago. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray together, and we're going to come to the Lord's Supper and continue to commune with God this morning.
Oh God, we ask that you would help us to do what Samuel counsels there at the end of this passage, to, to consider what great things you've done for us. And would you help us even this morning to see your grace, grace that is disproportionate, extravagant, greater than our sin. Help us to see your patience, your long-suffering, your gentle and lowly and forgiving heart for us. And would you help us to see it particularly in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the one to whom Samuel's ministry points. And so we ask that you would meet with us now as we come to the Lord's table. And then would you send us out with the good news of the grace and the forgiveness that we have received here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.